This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. It might seem like eons ago that magazines, the glossy type that you'd count the days until they dropped in your mailbox, were a formidable publishing medium. But with the expansion of digital content, magazine racks are looking gaunt. Just Sunday, I was at Barnes & Noble's and I couldn't find three of my favorite magazines. A year and a half ago, the magazine I was a field editor and writer for, Flea Market Style, was gobbled up by the digital Leviathan. Despite their demise, Dave and I both have a thing for magazines. We've been editors and writers for them, and there's nothing quite like holding a magazine in your hand. The smell of the ink, the splashy colors and images, the ability to flip through the pages until you're captivated by that one article. It's a unique experience. Today, Dave and I want to hearken back to our magazine days and provide some tips on what you can learn about writing and publishing for magazines for book writing. Before we go there, Dave, let's talk about where we've made progress. Okay, well, my big progress is that I have been walking to work. It's about 1.5 miles from my house to the office, and I realize a lot of people are officing at home, and you office at home a lot, but you also come into the office several times a week. So it's about 1.5 miles, maybe close to two miles, and I've been doing that during the summer a couple times, well, this last week maybe four or five times. And I really enjoy it because I get to listen to a podcast while I'm walking. And since my office is so close, I don't have a lot of drive time. So I don't have a, you know, time to sit yeah. in the car and listen to podcasts. So they, it's just enjoyable. Even when it's been warm, sometimes I arrive kind of sweaty. But I could only do it, obviously, when I don't have client meetings and I don't need a car to go to a meeting. So walking is so good for you. It's great for you know cutting some weight if you're interested in that and just healthy and I just it's been a great joy so my progress actually is walking more that is great it's a great kind of mental clearer and energizer so I want to know what podcasts are you listening to do you flip around or is that one you're deep into so that's a good question uh two things one I always am listening to books as well. So right now I'm listening to Audible and I'm listening to a book called Noise, which won the, won the Pulitzer Prize. It's on the errors in human judgment. Yeah. Let me give you an example. So if you're a judge and you have to sentence somebody on a Monday, but on Friday evening you go to uh, the high school game and your son is a running back and he had a great game. So emotionally on you're on a high. On Monday you'll likely give that person who maybe needs three years or should get sentenced to three years, you'll probably give him or her 2.5 years or two years, or maybe just let her out on parole. Wow. It has to do, they call this noise. It's variability in human judgment. And hmm. the book is just, it's complex and it hurts my head sometimes to listen to it, but it's been really wonderful. So I'm almost done with it. And I, I often listen to two or three books at a time, sometimes a business book like that or yeah. more concept book like that, and then some novels. I've listened to Jaber Crow. I've listened to a lot of fly fishing books that way. So that's what I'm listening. So instead of podcast right now, I should have said Audible. I'm actually listening to a book right now. That's awesome. I need to listen to Audible. I need to 
do that more than podcasts. I think podcasts can be kind of trashy sometimes. They can be, but there's also great insight from podcasts too. I love podcasts too. So, so tell me, where have you made progress? Well, I promise this will be the last week I talk about this, but I do feel like it's been a huge mental shift in my life, this working out and trying to kind of shed my COVID inactive mentality. And I joined Orange Theory a couple of weeks ago. I'm on my third week and it is just so tough physically and mentally. I went to class on Tuesday night and I just, I pushed myself really hard and that's what I like about it because it does have the numbers you can push yourself. So I'm, I'm, I see my calorie burn climbing, my numbers getting better and better, but I was so sick afterwards and I'm, I was so sore yesterday. I tried to go for a jog outside and my legs felt like heaps of concrete. So, but I do feel like I'm making improvement as far as going a little bit harder, becoming more confident, seeing a little bit of improvement. So I, I'm enjoying it. I am enjoying the challenge. Last time I was really challenged like that was when I was training for a marathon, half marathon, and I worked really, really hard at that, but I haven't worked that hard at exercising in a really long time. So, so this is an hour long, right? Or it's an 50 hour minutes. long. Yeah. So what, at what point in that 50 minutes or an hour, do you think I'm not going to get through this? Well, it's it's different every time because they divide the class up into two halves and half starts out on the treadmill and the other half starts out on the floor with weights and resistance training. And up until Tuesday, I always started out on the treadmill and arguably that's the high intensity part. So it's, I think, easier to start out with that because you have more energy at the beginning of class. And so this time it was the latter half. So we'd already done like 27, 28 minutes of just floor work, lots and lots of lunges, jumping lunges, just, you know, just hard stuff on your body. And then we went over to the treadmill and did hill work where you're increasing the incline with while you're running. And it was intense. Every 30 seconds, you're going up a 1% grade. And it was so hard. And we had to go through that three times. And the last time I was just like, I don't know if I can make it. This is really, really, really hard. <laughs> so well, bully it, for you. I think that's great. Yeah. I I'll, we'll see if I stick with it. I'm, you know, I, I hope I do. It's been a good thing for me. Anyway, so we're both making progress in our health, I guess. That's I guess. I'm walking. You're doing things more hard, more difficult. No. <laughs> walking is great. All right. So let's turn to our topic today, which is what magazine writing and publishing can teach us or you, our listener, about writing books? Because there's some principles that apply for magazine writing to book writing. And Dave and I, with our experience in magazine writing, thought it would be fun to just share some of those those tips. So Dave, what is our first tip, our first application? So the very first application or point is that you have to know your audience in book writing. And the one thing about magazines is that each has a very unique audience. And it's so well-defined that the audience is willing to pay $19.95 a year or $49 a year. They're willing to pay for it. It's content that is so good that this cluster of people is willing to pay for it. Right. I just picked up a magazine on Sunday for, I think it was $9.99, and it's a monthly magazine, and I don't buy it every month, but there was one article in there that really spoke to me, and so I'm like, I'm going to buy this because yep. this looks so good, it's worth $9.99 for me, even better than you know waiting for it to come out on digital. What's interesting to me is your point, which is you found one article that moved you. That will, when you see that on the title of the 
cover of the magazine, you'll buy it for that, right? Or you'll continue your subscription if you're getting at least one really good article that speaks to you every month. I used to, I don't anymore, I get the online version, but the New Yorker, I used to get the New Yorker, I used to get the Atlantic, I used to get Harper's. But the one thing with the New Yorker that I always used to love is I used to have this long well piece, like some well-reported piece. And I didn't even have to get one good one a month, but every couple of months, if there was one that was so well-reported and so well-written, I would continue my, my subscription. And so this idea of an audience, the, the reasons magazines can exist, because they they'll support an audience that likes that magazine and will continue to pay that money. It's really good for book writers to think about this. I was just on, a, on the phone with a, with a potential author this morning. He's thinking about writing a book, and he has this idea of a fable for, uh, for a business book. And so the first question always is, who is your audience? It is so critically important, and magazines have done that in spades. Right, and the reason why you ask that again, who is your audience, is because you want to know if they would be willing to pay $19.95, $29.95, or working with an author who's going to be writing a book and the publisher is recommending $39.95. And a person would be willing to do that if it speaks so exclusively to them in such a fresh way that they could justify paying that much. So again, you need to know your audience, not just so you know how to gear your content, but also because when you gear your content towards them, you can justify the price that you're asking them to purchase it for. The person who is willing to lay down $19.95 or $24.95 for a book or whatever the price, that has to be really good writing, right? Most likely somebody has referred that book to you. Oh, you've just got to get this book that so-and-so read. Like I have a friend, uh, he's one of our clients actually, who told me about this book about the guy who founded the Silk Road. It was a website, dark. It was on the dark web that okay. basically yeah. trafficked in drugs and everything. And and so it was a long book, but he referred it to me, and I read it, and I was like, man, this is great. But that's how books are sold. This idea of paying for content, which magazines have have figured out a model now, it's not as good anymore because everything is free. But there's something really wonderful about being paid uh, for your content. And, and I think writers of books should think about their book that way. Like, would somebody, is this this good that somebody would be willing to pay for it? I also think that the concept of knowing your reader goes towards you being more specific with your writing than more general. When I worked for Flea Market Style magazine, I had a couple of articles come back to me because they weren't specific enough for my audience. And she wanted me to rewrite them so that they were more specific for Flea Market Style. So Flea Market Style had lots of decorating ideas, but it wasn't a general decorating magazine. It always had to have the hook of Flea Market Style. You know, the style that you find at flea markets are inspired by flea markets, et cetera, et cetera. And so if that wasn't a big part of the story, then you were going to have to rewrite it. And I did a couple of times. So again, I think that magazine editors know who their audience is and they make sure that all the content goes through that filter. So the earlier that you can identify your audience for your book, the better you're going to be at filtering what goes into your chapters and what doesn't belong or how you state something, how you phrase something, the stories you tell, how you frame your stories. That's a challenge, actually, with blogs and all the free content is that anybody can put up a blog, which is wonderful. That's a wonderful thing. Anybody can write, and people can vent on their blog. But 
to actually have a blog following means you have people who want to read your your stuff. And I think thinking that through is really, really important. I love this, what you said about, you know, general is bad and more specific is good. And so as you think about your audience for your book, what magazines have done is is something to emulate as you think about your book. It's really about tribe building in many ways. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to make anybody feel insecure about it, about content that is so good that people can pay for it. I think anybody can create that. But you can't create that without thinking about that, being conscious of that, and really working at your writing to meet that need. Right. I mean, how many of us have been disappointed when we've bought a book and the writing is just so bad and we're like, I cannot believe I wasted $15 on this totally. book. That's a terrible feeling. So when you're asking people to pay to fork over $14.99, $19.99, whatever it is, you want them to feel good about that purchase. That's right. And, and the way that book is going to sell, again, is after they read it, they refer it. And, and that is just the most powerful way that books sell. Right refer it one-on-one, -on -one, but also on their platforms in big settings. That's so, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. All right. Point number two, I'll take this one, is you have to have a hook. And I'll tell a quick little story to illustrate this. When I was working for Flea Market Style Magazine, I was doing a feature on these two 20-something homeowners who had just bought a 1920s bungalow. And when they took over ownership, squatters had been living there. It was a drug house. It was just, it was just a classic, stinky, gross, rundown house, and then they brought it back to life. And so I wrote the story with that as the hook. I sent it to the editor, and she sent it back. She says, this is not a good hook. Every decorating story with old houses starts out this way. It was in shambles, and now look at how great it is. You know, that's the, that's the <laughs> narrative journey. And so she wanted me to come up with another hook. And so I went back to my research, to my interview with them, and I found this little nugget, and it was when they found in their remodeling, when they'd stripped down the house to its studs, they found these letters from the 1940s from the homeowner, the male homeowner to his wife when he was off at war. And it was, it was they, the new homeowners began reading them like once, once a week, these love letters. And it became this kind of metaphor for their, their love story in this house. And that would, became the hook. So I went back and wrote it, and the title reflected that. I think it was Romantics at Heart was the title, which we'll get to in a minute about titling. So again, the hook is, was very specific, very nuanced, and not general. That is really a great example of, of a hook. And we, we talk about this with our, with our books, that every chapter has to have a hook. Right. It has to start with a hook. Because if you've completed a, a chapter, in a sense, you've, you've wrapped up the tension. And so every chapter, in a sense, requires you to rehook the reader. And, and that's one of the great gifts of magazine writing is that every, ch every article in that magazine has a hook to arrest the attention of the reader. And so how specific that was is really, really wonderful. And it really goes to what we talk about, that which is most universal is most specific right so that little specific nugget that you pulled out and you kind of blew up into a little anecdote to to start that article what a great what a great example of of specificity and a hook 
We just had a conversation yesterday with an author who is struggling with figuring out how to tell those opening chapter stories. And I think what magazine writing does for you is it makes you get to the point pretty quickly because they're not as long as chapters typically unless it's like a well article like The Atlantic or The New Yorker or something like that. But so we were working with him on trying to find little nuggets of stories like the one I just talked about and try to just nuance that a little bit, massage it a little bit, blow it up a tiny bit, but don't go into the entire story surrounding it and following it. It's about really editing and finding something really unique to yeah. capture the imagination of your reader. It's a discipline, and the tendency, I think, is to get lazy in book writing, thinking, hey, you know, this I've got 50,000 words, and and not to really pay attention to Hooking the reader at these key moments, and definitely the first, uh, inter- the introduction to every chapter is so key to that. Dave, do you remember any introductions that you wrote in your magazine days that were especially provocative? <laughs> so I wrote. So I worked for a magazine called Leadership Journal for on and off for about eight years, and it was a publication for nonprofit leaders, specifically pastors and nonprofit leaders who had a leadership mindset who were interested in the in topics of leadership how to lead their church how to raise money how to grow how to get bigger and so you had a certain kind of mindset that that read that publication one of the things that we published regularly what we what we were were calling docudramas and these were stories of pastors for example that had gone through some sort of wretched hmm. event. So I remember one of the, I actually won, a, won an award for this one, but it was, uh, it was, <laughs> it, it, I, the story was so moving, or not moving, it was so wretched. Uh, so the pastor ended up having an affair yeah. with a woman. But the opening scene was he was in a boat with this woman Mm. and she gave him a gift Mm -hmm. and the gift was a speedo Mm. and then she invites him to put the speedo on and of course as you can imagine one thing led to another so this is someone who is married it it was a really wretched story but that's how we started that yeah that's a good beginning that's a good beginning so (laughs) we started with the scene of on the speedboat when it all fell apart. When it all fell apart. But, of course, so much led up to that. But that was the scene where I wanted to hook the reader. It was. It's a great example of a hook, right, is that you start as close to the action as possible. Right. And just the specificity of the Speedo, and I'm sure, you, you know, even the boat that they were on and where they were at. I mean, we were talking yesterday with somebody about just give, give some details. Paint the vignette. Paint the picture. Paint the picture. Paint the, the paint the picture. Yeah. yeah, that's that's great. Do you remember the title of that by chance? I do not. Yeah. I do not remember the title of that, but I do remember that obviously this leader was had violated you know an egregious crossed an egregious line. Right. And uh, and it wasn't the woman's fault that she gave him a gift and gave him the speedo. It was a complex story and and it really ruined his ministry and his work in the church. But it, it came kind of full circle. He eventually was restored after he went through a bunch of a long process and there's trying to be healing in the whole thing. But it was a very it was a fun story to write. <laughs> 
I think one more point I want to make about the hook, the story, the opening is that it connects you emotionally with the reader. There's some humanity in that, that if I were in that position, what would I do? So I think there's an element when you tell a story, when you have a hook, you need to think about how are you drawing in the reader emotionally? I think that that's a big, big point of that hook. And sometimes the stories are aspirational. Maybe you want to inspire people, you know, like with greatness or heroism, and it's not where people are, but it's where maybe they want to be. So there's a real opportunity in those hooks to connect on a human level with your reader. If you're not writing and you're not connecting on, a, on an emotional and slash human level, why are you writing? Right. Why are you writing? It's a technical manual if, if that, that's all you're doing. Right. That is a great yeah, point, yeah. Dave. All right. What's our third point? So our third point is all about titling. One of the great gifts of magazine is how they title articles and then also how they hook you with the cover titles. Right. 13 ways to do this, nine ways to do this. Often they don't do the number 10. There's all this research that would show if you did an odd number, people are more likely to flip to do the magazine. So it might That's be a, a nugget. It's right totally there. a nugget. It's 117 <laughs> tips, not 100 tips. Is that why we're Journey 66? That's why we're Journey 66 <laughs> and our price is only $66 now. But it, it's one of those odd things. that it's, it, But magazines have perfected the art of hooking the reader with a great title. Yeah, they sure have. I just read an article this weekend now, that magazine that I spent $9.99 on, and it was a decorating magazine, but a pretty reputable one. And one of the titles was Barn to be Wild. So obviously it's a play on words, Born to be Wild, and it was about a barn that was refurbished in the English countryside. So it, it did hook me, and it, it was clever. I worked with an editor who was a master of clever titling, and I just, it's a real gift. But when I started to work on my own titling, it took time. So I think one principle that you can apply to book writing is take your time thinking through titles. Don't just settle for the first one that comes to your to your mind. Maybe that will be the one you end up with, but really work hard to think through the messaging of it, what it's conveying, the what's implied. <laughs> Is it clever? Is it going to catch the attention of your reader? We have worked with authors who had traditional publishing contracts and had a great idea for a title. And the publisher wanted to do some real boring title. Yeah. And he made a big case for it. And actually won. If you if you publish with a traditional publisher, often you lose control. Right. So my book, Death by Suburb, was that came from the publisher. <laughs> it was a great name. I would have never come up with that. What would you have said? Spirituality in the suburbs. Oh yeah. Or something like that. Death by right? suburbs is more provocative. Yeah, suburbs it was more, more provocative. And if you look at the the hardcover uh, image, it matches that with these plastic family, this plastic family sitting in front of a plastic house, you know. Mm. And so they did a great job. But but if you're self publishing. Or even publishing with a hybrid publisher, you plan to, in a sense, outsource all that to someone who will publish that for you. Really work hard on the title of your book. It, it matters. It, it does, does matter. matter. You also spoke to the packaging of the book, and I think that's something else that magazines do incredibly well because it is a visual medium in many ways. And so they are thinking strategically about the images that they're using, what those images are conveying, if it's the best image, and if it is 
even the best angles. So I, I think the application is, is care about your artwork. We always talk about, especially if you're self-publishing, the artwork can make or break your book. So take that magazine principle, really care about the artwork. It makes the book memorable and it creates an emotion that they attach to the reading. That all factors into the, into the referral. I remember, I just keep thinking of the books that have been referred to me. I remember that book, Blue Like Jazz, that Donald Miller yep. wrote like 20 years ago mm -hmm. or 15 years ago. But just the, the title, Blue Like Jazz, that was a blue cover. I still remember, I don't remember what was in the book that much, but I remember the title. The color, the delivery of the message left a, a it's kind of like branding, right? The it emotion. It really is. Absolutely, the senses. that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I read an article this week that was talking about how Books tend to be designed in categories that your reader expects. So if you're writing a business book, it would benefit you for it to look like a business book in many ways. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule. If you're writing a spirituality book, it might it benefits you to make it look like a spirituality book, else people are going to be really confused and may not even grab it. What do you think about that advice, Dave? I do think that's true. I, I absolutely, there are categories that, that people expect but within that category, I do think you need to surprise people and not use cliche art, right? I right. think there still needs to be a fresh concept. I do think there are probably times to break out of books uh, of the category. I'm trying to think of an example like that. I'm not sure I can, but there might be times. But I do think that the design needs to be evocative and fresh within the category. Just because you have a business category doesn't mean it has to be a boring book like so many business books are like snoozers, right? <laughs> right. We could do better with fewer snoozers. Yes, we sure. could. <laughs> All right. So the next application, what we can learn from magazine publishing and writing is that subheads and callouts play an important role. Do you want to talk about that one, Dave? We've talked about this with our road trippers, and I think it's worth mentioning over and over again. So books have what are called subheads, right? And subheads are a part of the white space. So if you look at, let's just say, a two-page layout of a book, you'll have a certain amount of space in the gutters. You'll have a certain amount of what's called letting, the space between sentences, and there's what's called kerning, the way the, the, the fonts are, are structured, and then there are subheads. All this is designed to keep the reader reading, to keep the eye moving. And one of the key elements are subheads. And so subheads are really important, and they're important to keep the reader moving. And to, in a sense, in some ways, to not to create tension. It, it, I'll just go back. to It's just really to keep the eye moving, keep flow. And so those, those, those subheads need to be crisp. And not just informational, but almost like mini hooks. Right, right. So short phrases that, that signal what's to come without being descriptive. Right, because those subheads are in bold. So I think about all the times I open up a magazine or even a book, and I'm just scanning to see if this is something I want to buy. And my eye goes to a subhead that seems provocative or interesting, and that draws me in and I read it. And if it's good, then I'm like, yeah, maybe I will buy this. But it also helps the reader scan and to be able to make quick judgments about your writing if it's, if it's going to be good or not. Yeah, subheads are really basic to good book writing. And 
In fact, I will use a subhead to help me write a chapter. Sometimes when I get lost in writing a chapter, I'll just stop, create a subhead, and start a new section, even but, if I have to go back and rewrite it. Right, and because you can think of subheads as unique chunks of content or unique sections with their own big idea. Of yes. course, it relates to the overall idea of, of the chapter, and that chapter relates to the overall idea of the book. But you can think of them as these mini little sections, and so you can maybe even start with another mini hook. Absolutely. Sometimes That's exactly right. After that subhead, you might go, oh, I'm going to hook them with this really delectable uh, statistic. Right, right. And, and you start out. So in 2005, 57 people drowned in Yellowstone National Park or something like that. And, and you, then you use that as a hook to get into your, and that, that not only the subhead, but then that little anecdote or statistic creates tension and, and keeps people moving. So subheads are important. Pull quotes are another strategy that magazines use. They pull out some actual content from the from the article. And again, this is scannable material. People, you can engage the reader really quickly, even if they haven't dipped in entirely into the article. They, they can see what the story is about just by these pull quotes or call outs. Yeah. We should probably do a like a whole episode on how to design the interior of your book. Maybe we we interview one of our designers and do yeah, that. Yeah, that would be and, awesome. And just some principles. Yeah. Because if you're doing it yourself or you're having a hybrid publisher, and there's more and more there are these publishers that will publish your book for you. They'll provide you an editor. They'll provide you a designer. They'll just, they provide you a turnkey publishing solution. And But you need to pay attention and not just say yes to everything that they, they provide you. You need to have feedback. And so understanding, for example, even in how the interior design of a book should be laid out. We were working on a project, and the font was too small. It was too small. It was too small, and there was pushback from the author, and, and he was absolutely right. We, and we went with a different font, and it, it shaped it, it made, made it more readable. It made the book readable. Right, yeah, right. That's a great point. Yeah. And sometimes people use pull quotes in book chapters, right? Right. We, we've done it a lot in the books that we've published in the past where we're actually, it's almost like a magazine article where you have every, maybe every magazine, not every page generally. It's like but every four to five pages. Every four to five pages will have a pull quote. What that does, again, is give visual relief and helps people, if they're flipping through the book, to read the pull quote and then to start reading the book, even if it's in the middle of the book. Right, right. Those are great strategies. We, yeah, we should do an episode on that. So the fifth point, the fifth application of magazine writing to book writing is that writing benefits from being tightly edited, from being a tight edit. And I'll just start out by saying, when I was doing a lot of magazine writing for Flea Market Style magazine, my editor became my best friend, and I went in, and every piece I wrote was edited and sentences were struck and she would move things around and I paid attention to those edits because I really wanted to make my future writing better and I think that that is something as especially a new writer even as an experienced writer you benefit from is when you get that editing feedback developmental editing feedback where they say you know have you thought about moving this around or getting rid of this or tightening this up um, great writing is tightly edited and you really should embrace your editor as a friend rather than an enemy. It's hard though, isn't it? I, I remember doing a piece for the New York Times on the suburbs and I the some editor reached out via Twitter and said, hey, 
uh, would you be, we're doing a whole section on the suburbs. Would you be willing to do one on spirituality? For this? So I worked hard. It wasn't a long piece. It probably was 600 to 1,000 words, maybe less. It was a really short. It was kind of a vignette almost. And I worked my butt off, and I made that thing so tight. I thought it was tight. <laughs> and then I sent it to her, and, and she, oh, this is great. And then I saw what she published. She didn't even tell me what she, what she did. Right. And she sucked some more fat out of it. She did a couple things that I probably wouldn't have done, which she added some things, which I didn't really fit. So there are times when editors definitely crossed the line. Right. But 90% of what she did was exactly what that piece needed, and I was so glad that she did it. We like to say that the editor is almost always right. That's right. The editor is <laughs> almost always right. Not always right, but almost always right. The gift of writing a book and self-publishing a book especially is you get the final say in what stays and what doesn't, right? With magazine writing, like you alluded to, and this happened to me over and over again, I didn't see what the final looked like until it was published, right? I didn't get the feedback until well after it had been on the newsstands. I'm like, oh, look, she changed that. So the thing with self-publishing is you ultimately can have the final say, but we would really recommend you find a great editor, not your best friend who got a English degree or is great at proofing, but somebody who actually can make editorial judgment about flow and concept and storytelling. And, you know, if you're running on too long. Yes. Uh, editors are hard to find. And again, it's not your mom. It's not your best friend. It's not your third cousin removed who has a degree in English from some local college. It's somebody who's an editor. In fact, we were working with a client yesterday in our other business that Melissa and I work with. And we were doing this project with uh, an ophthalmologist. In fact, she's a CEO. And she was talking about a fellow former CEO that she was with and is good friends with. They, there was some famous poet. He had taken the famous poet's uh, book and edited it. <laughs> but that's a mindset, right? And, and you want that. You just want that. If you're self-publishing you, and you don't have that editor in five to ten years, you might regret what you published. Right, because there's so much stuff that we just don't see as fluff, right? I mean, you're just oblivious to it because you're writing and you're pulling from your own experiences and your own stories, and it may feel important to you, but an editor can, can say, this isn't really important to the reader. The piece here that I think is really important is that an editor, the editor's job is to make things clear, and advocate for your reader. And advocate for the reader. And I guess ultimately advocate for you so you sell more copies. It has to be clear. We get so often when we're working with writers, we'll get something along the line, oh, well, you just don't understand that because this is art and I'm trying to convey an emotion in my writing. I'm thinking, no, it's just <laughs> not clear. You have to say what you mean. I'm not going to infer from some oblique what you perceive as emotional sentence, it has to, you have to actually, after you tell that story, you have to make the point that you want me to get from right. that story. Book writing is not poetry writing. Book writing <laughs> is not poetry writing. That is so true. <laughs> well, gosh, does this make you want to go back and write some magazine articles, Dave? It does, actually. I really have gotten a lot of energy. I've written so many through the years for different publications, and there is so much work that's involved in it. And the work is not just the research, but the crafting. Right. And when you're writing for a publication, you spend much more time crafting. Yes, you have to have that first draft, blah, blah, blah. But after that, there's a 
thousand drafts, a thousand revisions of tightening sentences, whacking points, adding illustrations. And it's a joy to me. I love that work. There are so few magazines and so many writers that magazines can be selective in who they choose to write. So when you write for a magazine, your writing has got to be the best of the best. And editors are only going to choose the best of the best. And so I think the principle that you were talking about is about the crafting. Think about being one of the only people asked to write a magazine article. How much time are you going to spend on that to get that to get that published, to shine above the rest of the people who are contributing articles to that magazine and wanting to be published. And I think the, the encouraging word is that you can do this and you can learn this. It's not like it's the only the ability of a few. You can learn to craft your sentences. You can learn to do more research. It reminds me, in our other business, uh, marketing business, we work with a client in the wealth management space and we, do, we help them publish different types of articles for their audience and and one of them wanted to publish for was it Kiplinger's I think it was mm -hmm. and so they had reached out to Kiplinger's and said well you know what is it that you uh, what are your requirements well if you're even if you're writing for an online publication and it's not print only they still have very specific requirements and so one of the requirements was that you couldn't write in kind of this generic third person pronouns and, and, and cold. It had to be very warm and personal. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, I do remember that. And you had to write in the I. So even though you're writing on finance and money, it has to live. The writing has to live. The writing has to be about humans and it has to be lively and it has to be interesting. And so much of work on the corporate side it gets sent out to clients is just, you know, here's a market commentary. Here's this. Here's <laughs> this. Here's information, right? Here's more information. I'm telling you, the world does not need more information. It needs more of you. It needs more emotion. It needs more crafting. It, it needs stories that arrest me. It needs clarity. All those things really make for great writing. I think that's a great note to end on, Dave. All right. Let's turn to our words of the episode. All right. You go first okay. this time. So this is a French word, and I just learned it recently. I don't know. I was reading it somewhere, and I didn't know this word. And it's A-U-B-A-D-E, and you pronounce it obad. 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 I have never heard of that word. Yeah, I, I know. That's why I looked it up. I hadn't either. And it's a poem or piece of music appropriate to the dawn or early morning, or it's a morning love song often sung or written when lovers are parting at dawn. So if you do a Google search, you see and you do like an image, you select image on the web browser, you see all these obads pop up and they're all these poems to their lovers. That's what they are. And there's some good ones and there's some not so good ones. Some are short, some are long, some are <laughs> more more deft and, than others, but an obad, they're, they're poems or love songs um, typically upon parting, but you can use it in a more metaphorical sense too. So, or a song instrumental or song accompanying or evoking daybreak. So like the blackbirds of Obad was hope after a restless night. So I think you could actually use it in writing. Again, it may slow down the, the reader because they wouldn't know what it meant, but they may be able to infer it. I think it's okay to use words like that occasionally to lift in a sense, the intelligence of your reader. 
So let me say, so you say that again, the Blackbirds Obad was hope after a restless night. Yeah. That's a great use of that word. Actually, yeah, because it conveys hope, like morning is broken, right? That classic tune that we have sung. Yeah. All right. Your word, Dave. So I am going to, today, instead of having one word, I'm going to do an adjective noun combination. Now, we talk so often that good writers, the better writer you are, the fewer adjectives and adverbs you use. Right. Because the job of a writer is to to find better and stronger verbs and better and stronger nouns, more vibrant nouns. Because you can always tell a newbie writer because they're 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 telling you that they're writing and they're using lots of adverbs and they're breathless. I'm breathlessly telling you about this and blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, so there's a discipline as you write more to learn to dial that back. Right. But then there's a time to dial that back up again. It, once you learn the discipline, then you can start using adjectives and adverbs in really powerful ways. So I'm gonna I'm going to show you, or not show, I'm going to tell you um, this this combo. It comes from the poet Mary Oliver. Now, it's not a poem. It comes from her book uh, called Winter Hours. And I need to at least give you the, uh, she's talking, she's creating this image of winter. And she's, in this sentence, she's going to use the word censor. And the, and the word is C-E-N-S-E-R. And censor is this bottle of incense that priests will swing around, especially in like the Greek Orthodox churches or the Russian Orthodox churches. But they're they're throwing out incense. And you've probably seen this in a movie yeah, or something. Yeah, right, right. So I just wanted to add that in there. So when I tell you this sentence that you understand it. But the combo that I want to talk about is when she says metallic frankness. Ooh, now I'm intrigued. Metallic frankness. So here you go. She's talking about winter and she's trying to set this scene about winter and the emotion of winter. So here we go. The house is hard cold. Winter walks up and down the town swinging his censer, but no smoke or sweetness comes from it. Only the sour metallic frankness of salt and snow. There's so much to love about the sentence besides metallic frankness, but I love how she personifies winter. Winter walks up and down the town. Swinging. Yeah, it's such a great visual. So tell me what you like about that combination, metallic frankness. It evokes, well, I grew up in North Dakota, and so I grew up in the salt and the snow. And so when she talks about the heart, the house being hard, cold, I mean, I told, now so she's setting this emotion and the metallic frankness, I, I hear salt being thrown on the streets or kicking up salt. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens when it merges with, with snow, it's not like s- snow softly falling yeah, down. Yeah. It's, it's metallic, the metallic frankness. She is a master of imagery because you hear things, you smell things in this sentence, in this, these short two little sentences. She does so much. You feel that it's cold. She, even with her connotation, paints this harshness using yes. words like hard, frank, salt, a, a metallic. These all create kind of this harsh yeah. feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Masterful connotation, personification, amazing imagery. It is. I, I love Mary Oliver. 
Oliver for that. And we always say this, if you want to become a better writer, and we all do, right, is read better writing. You can't read that and not aspire to write like her. I just read it and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm going to write better. I'm going to spend more time. I'm going to cut out those adjectives. I'm going to, I'm just going to do a better job of writing or at least try to do better. Right. She could have just said winter is harsh, but she painted in those two short sentences so much more. She, she did. She painted yeah. the picture of winter's harshness. And I can promise you that sentence did not take her one minute to write. Right. She wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And dug hard. And dug hard, yeah, and laid down something that was a cliche, and then she goes, no, nah, I can't say that. What's a fresh way of saying that? Oh, and... That's just how great writing happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm so motivated by this. I am motivated to until I challenge myself to actually do it, and then I flip on my social media. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I start writing, oh, man, this is crap. Yeah, I'm right, that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, those two words close out our episode, but before we sign off, we want to invite you to take our quiz on our website. So jump on the navigational link at the top of Journey 66 and take the quiz. Dave, what will they find in this quiz? This is for those of you writers who are at the very beginning stages of thinking about writing, maybe even just an article. Uh, or writing a book, you might have an idea. And so you just wonder, is this idea good? You know, and what do I need next before I start writing? How do I need to think about this idea? And how do I need to make progress on the idea itself? Some people don't really start thinking about that idea until they start writing and they go, oh, I'm a little bit lost. Right. What am I really saying? So this quiz is about those of you who are in that very early stage of kind of forming the idea for your book. Maybe you want to write a memoir. Maybe you write a, want to write a business book or a spirituality book. There's just so many books. And right. we, you have this nascent idea. And so this quiz will actually help you shape it. And what you get when you take the quiz, you get this tool that is something you and I use when we work with authors to sharpen the book idea and get really clear on it. Yeah, I love it. It's going to be so helpful for you if you are thinking, I want to write a book, but I just don't know if this is a good idea. So definitely go to journey66.com and check it out. All right. Well, I think that that's a wrap. Another fun episode, Dave. Another fun episode. All right. Well, I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.